I love the idea of time travel. I've been fascinated by time travel ever since I was a little kid watching science fiction on the black and white television. And today's episode of the Twin Cities Mind podcast is a bit of a time travel because we are going back to pre-COVID days. In an interview that I did with Jason DeRussia of WCCO and Minnesota Monthly, just ahead of the pandemic eruption. And so this was an interview that we did in January of 2020. And we talk about restaurants, we talk about wine bars, we talk about what makes for a great wine list, we talk about natural wine, we talk about pushing weird wine at restaurants, we talk about the life of a morning news anchor. It's really kind of just a fun conversation. But keep in mind as we're going through this that we talked before the world changed. And so it's a very, very interesting little moment in time captured on audio. So I hope that you enjoy it. So for those of you who are outside of the Twin Cities or you just don't know who Jason DeRussia is, very, very quick introduction. So Jason DeRussia's main job is the morning news anchor at WCCO Television, but he's created this side career reporting on passions of food and wine. And it started with a trip to Napa Valley about a decade ago. And during that trip, he created a social media account just dedicated to wine and food. And then that led to a job reviewing suburban restaurants. That led to a column. And now he's the editor and the food critic of Minnesota Monthly Magazine. His TV stories on food and restaurants have led to him being a finalist for a National James Beard Award. He has also won 10 regional Emmy Awards, including for his DeRussia Eats segment. He was named Distinguished Alumnus for his suburban Chicago high school and Young Alumnus from the College of Communication at Marquette University. Today, he is one of the few voices critically writing and reporting about food and wine recommendations and trends in the Twin Cities. So without further ado, let's listen to the pre-COVID time capsule interview with Jason DeRussia after this word from our sponsor. The Wine Workshop is our online wine education platform, and we are super proud of it. It's a fun, interactive, snob-free setting for learning about wine. It's a place you can learn at your own pace. We founded the Wine Workshop to bring down the barriers of wine learning, eliminating pretense, having more fun, bringing you topics relevant to you as a wine consumer. We're having a great time with students around the country and even around the world, and we'd love to have you join us. Learn more at thewineworkshop.net. That is thewineworkshop.net. Hope to see you there soon. What were you like in high school? What social groups were you in and what led to broadcast journalism as a career? I mean, I was super cool. (laughs) (laughs) The coolest of the cool. Yeah, which is exactly what you say when you're not cool. I was uh, I was very studious. I was a, uh, you know, top one percent student at my high school. Um, But I was also the morning announcement guy. So I was uh, academically nerdy. I was involved in theater, and uh, we had a radio station at my high school. Nice. So I was the news director and then the station manager of the radio station. Was it like a jazz station? or? Well, it was an actual over-the-air radio station that my high school shared with two other schools. And we did, like, this was back before you had... 
the Fox Sports Norse of the world, broadcasting high school sports and all of this. So our high school radio station, when our girls' basketball team made it to the state tournament, the only way people could listen was through uh, WMTHFM 90.5. Nice. And, and that uh, was down in Chicago? Yeah, suburban Chicago, Des Plaines, Illinois, is where I grew up. Uh, so I had this kind of theater kid side. I had an academic uh, kid uh, side. And I also, though, worked for the park district. So in my spare time, I was working with athletes. It was other athletes. So I kind of was a floater between different groups. Nice, nice. So how did that lead to broadcast journalism then? I mean, obviously the fact that my high school had a radio station. Right. I knew from a young age that I wanted to go into broadcasting in some way. Mm -hmm. And I thought I really was going to be in radio. Um, But when I went to college at Marquette University... The college radio station was lamer than our high school radio station. (laughs) So I thought, like, well, I should go check out the TV station. And we had a student-run TV station at Marquette where we were doing newscasts a couple nights a week. We were producing game shows, entertainment shows, all this stuff, all run by the students. And you could start in as a freshman right away. So, I, you know, I started running cameras and running tape and audio and all of that. Um, and I just loved it. I absolutely fell in love with it. And, and, uh, from then on out, it was, you know, my, my college, me being in, in broadcast journalism is a surprise to literally zero people that I went to (laughs) high school with. It was definitely kind of the, the goal all along. So then from Marquette, did you come straight to Minneapolis from there? No. No. Uh, while I was at Marquette, I had a bunch of internships and I interned at ABC news in New York. Uh, Peter Jennings knew my name. That was kind of my that's big, cool. A bit of a thrill yeah. that summer, um, and then I got a job in Davenport, Iowa. My first job was in the Quad Cities, um, and then I was there for three years as a reporter and weekend anchor. Then I went to Milwaukee for three years, and then I came here where I thought I would be here for you know three five years, and sixteen years later, nice. here we are. Nice. Well, good to have you around here. Well done. I love it. I love being here, and uh, it's been a great ride. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this before as far as your transition from the evening broadcast to the morning broadcast. And a question that I always love to ask you is, what is your day like? Hmm. You know? Yeah, it's so different because I used to do a segment called Good Question, and right. I worked from 2 at night until 11 at night. Uh, and then I flipped, and now I anchor our morning news, and I work from 3.30 in the morning until Ouch. around noon. Um, so what time do you wake up in the morning, then? Alarm goes off at 2.26. <laughs> and people say, Jason, 2.26, why not just 2.30 or right. 2.25? Right. And I probably should wake up at you know 2.25, but yeah. I get, get that extra minute uh, right. of right. sleep. So 2, 2.26... Uh, shower, get dressed for work, mm-hmm. make my salad smoothie that mm-hmm. I start every day with, and then it's off to uh, off to the station. Get there at three thirty. I read four newspapers for a segment that I do about the morning headlines. Sure, uh, and then the show starts at four thirty. So wow. it's very strange. Most people in their job, you kind of you have a reverse bell curve as right. your day works. You know, you kind of ramp up. And you have some meetings, and you're really productive. Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoon, you kind of ramp down, and right, then you leave. Right. My job, I get to work, and then go straight to, straight to eleven. Yeah, right yeah. From right from the get go. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. So with two young boys, how old are your boys right now? Well, not as young anymore, yeah. but 12 and 14. Yeah. So is, is the morning work working better it's overall? It's really good for the family yeah. because I come home, I take a nap in the afternoon, and right. then, I, then like any other parent of a, a teenager knows, you just start driving them around <laughs> from one practice to exactly. another. Exactly. So, yeah, it's great. We have family dinner every night, which is... Uh, a, I'm I'm learning rare. Yeah, most people don't get to do that yep. with their kids, and we yep. do. And that's so great. It's fantastic. That's great. All right. So you mentioned dinner. That means food, and food means restaurants. So when it comes to your restaurant uh, criticism, reviews, discussions, your impact, can you talk about how that kind of wove into your into your job and into your jobs, I should say, because you you wear multiple hats. Yeah, I'm a little unusual in the kind of food and wine writing world in that I was not a cook. I, uh, my restaurant experience consists of being the manager of the concession stand at Rand Park Pool and Waterslide in suburban Chicago. I'm sure you did a great job. I made a hell of a nacho cheese dip. (laughs) I tell you what, I would, uh, I could open up that five gallon can of uh, melted cheddar cheese like nobody's business. Nice, um, But I come at it as a, a diner and a journalist. Mm-hmm. And so 10 years ago, <laughs> I've been doing, I've, someone has been paying me, barely, but paying <laughs> me to write uh, restaurant reviews or write about uh, the food and wine scene for about a decade. That's now. cool. And it started just as a, uh, it actually started because I was a judge at a Top Chef-style cooking competition that Minnesota Monthly put on mm-hmm. for the food and wine experience sure. back when it was at the convention center. Mm-hmm. They had been paying big money to bring in chefs from Chicago and New York and whatever, and no one in the Twin Cities cared. They didn't know who these chefs were. Right. So instead, the magazine decided, what if we did a contest with local chefs and gave the winning chef $5,000? Now, if you know what chefs make, like, yeah, that's, five grand is that's legit big time. money. That's legit for everybody, for sure. Yeah, and so uh, I was uh, uh, the TV station was a co-sponsor of this event, so mm-hmm. we got to send people over. And so some people from our morning show at that time were judges on Saturday, and then I was a judge on Sunday, the final day. And let's just say that the the traffic reporter at that time and some of the they weren't exactly. Uh, beloved by the chefs sure. in the competition. They weren't maybe experienced diners. They were more casual diners. So they brought the normal thing normal people bring, right? Which is, I don't like that, or I wouldn't eat that. Right. And I showed up sitting next to Bill Ward, mm-hmm. one of the great wine writers in the Twin Cities, yep. and uh, Dara Moskowitz yep. Rumdahl, one of the great wine and food writers. And I seemed to not be an idiot, was the main <laughs> thing that I accomplished there. And so a couple months later, Dara asked me if I had ever thought about doing restaurant reviews. And she asked me to do suburban dining reviews. Sure. Because she had been to the greatest restaurants all around Minnesota and mm-hmm. around the country. And as your food catalog gets larger, it can be harder to judge a suburban restaurant for what it's trying to do. And this one, the urban boom of restaurants is really starting. So right. so her plate was already full. Her with plate all, was full. Yep. And so she wanted someone with, you know, I live in the suburbs mm-hmm. and someone who could bring that perspective to it. So yeah, 10 years ago, I actually did a TV story this week where I revisited 
one of the restaurants that I reviewed when it opened a sure. decade ago. Wait, which restaurant it's was that? It's one of the few that is still open. It's yeah. Mendo Berry Cafe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In Mendota Heights. Yeah. Um, and they've, they made it. Ten wow, years. Mendo Berry. <laughs> I remember going to a wine dinner there with uh, Ernst Lozen from uh, Dr. Lozen oh Winery in Germany, and it yeah. was a, it was a fantastic night. Great, great food, the whole works. It's great, and what we're seeing today is I, and I think it's largely a result of real estate costs more mm-hmm. than anything else. But we're seeing uh, much better uh, wine and food. Uh, from restaurants closer to where people in the Twin Cities live, which is the suburb. For sure, for sure. Well, that's a good segue. So when we're talking about the restaurants um, in the Twin Cities, and we'll get specifically into wine, mm-hmm. but with restaurants, this boom that's happening, you know, we're seeing restaurant after restaurant open and open and open. We're seeing a few of them starting to close right now as well. Um, the, the the changes are afoot. Yeah. It's a it's a tough industry, and I know a lot of people in the, in the industry that are feeling squeezed from every direction. So whether it's regulations or taxation or um, minimum wage costs, et cetera, et cetera. There's this rise of something that has shown up kind of in the last year or two of the service charge. And we're seeing, you know, 2%, 3% service charge being added on top of everything on top of the bill. And a lot of times that this is going toward uh, health of the employees and uh, covering the cost of health care for quite a few of them. But there has been some pushback around town. What, what are your opinions, or have you heard anything yeah. around town? Um, I, I think what's happened is the consumer has a, a mental ceiling on how much you're willing to pay for stuff. Yep. So, uh, and I find myself when I'm reviewing places, I, I have to challenge my own ideas, like how much is an appropriate amount to cause, charge for a taco right how much is okay to charge for a burger right we've proven that we're willing to pay 16 dollars for a burger Mm -hmm. once you get to 18 you're pushing your luck right so restaurants can't raise the cost on food they just can't and so uh they've i think already raised the cost of wine and cocktails Mm -hmm. to a level that in this community i think is pretty much near the edge of what people are going to pay right and so what's left? So and, and, and what their is, costs are going up, so they have to get the money from somewhere. And what is that edge when it comes to wine? What, what, what do you see? So up? I think about this in because I always pay for my own wine. I don't mm-hmm. have uh, an expense account or anything like that. People think I just get everything for free, which would be lovely. <laughs> Turn in the is, receipt. Yeah, that is not true. Um, you know, for me, if I see a glass at $12, I think no problem. $12, mm-hmm. great. 13 fine. 14, you start thinking like, yeah, do I want to spend 14 on a glass of wine? Right. If it's good, you're like, sure. Uh, I, th- I see the range as 12 to 18. Mm-hmm. I think once you're charging 19 for a glass of wine, um, that's, that's an entree. Right. Right. And I think uh, unless it's a really special bottle, like that's not going to be a normal. You start to figure in tax and tip and everything like that. A $19 glass quickly turns into a $25 glass. Yes. And that's, and that's yeah. big money. And then add the service charges on top of right, that. Right, right. Do you think about uh, wine in terms of quantity or quality when, when you're dining, mm-hmm. just personally? Yeah. Because because a lot of restaurants you know, seem to always be insistent that we have to have a X amount dollar glass of wine. You know, right. We need to have a $7 yeah. glass of wine. We need to have a $6 glass yeah. of wine. Yeah. Um, for me, it's more about quality, and it's more about um, making sure the wine is good with the food. Right. 
So I will say that I would much rather spend 15 or $16 on a glass that I is going to be something exciting or interesting. Right. And I, I will admit, though, it's taken a little bit of time for me to come to that acceptance, right? right? And I remember my wife and I had a conversation one night where we were saying, you know, we have no problem spending $12, $13, $14 on a cocktail. Right. How come we're hesitant to do that on a glass of wine? Why is that? I think there's a perception of skill that mm-hmm. goes into making a cocktail. And so you see someone doing something. And when you see someone pouring a glass of wine, as a guest, you don't think about, well, there's a cost for the glass. There's a cost for the acquisition process. Right. The talent of whoever. And the training. Yep. The training. You don't see that as a guest, whereas right. you see a bartender making a cocktail. It's a really interesting point because a lot of people... You know, the people that are in the know with wine, they know how much the wine actually costs. So right. they know what the retail price is, then they yeah. start to do the math and they say, wow, this restaurant is uh, either giving me a bargain or they're really nailing me as far as right. price. But the irony is that the cost of goods is actually far lower in the cocktail world. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I, no one thinks about like, well, that half ounce of, you know, chartreuse. Right, right. Like T- top level cocktail is about 12 a, cents. Exactly. Un- right. Under a dollar of cost or two dollars cost sure. built into it. And then you sell it for but 10 or 12 show, bucks. Like someone's doing something. So right. You're like, OK, I'll pay for that. Right. Whereas it's a glass of wine and people think like, well, I could just. Should we put a glass of wine underneath a glass dome and um, <laughs> put some smoke in it? <laughs> that, that'd be kind of cool. People might like that. Maybe we could put it through a hop rocket. Right? That'd be awesome. <laughs> It is strange, right? Like I and I I confess all of this because I've gone through the journey where we had to have mm-hmm. a conversation. We said, you know, why are we what and I still love a cocktail. Like right. I absolutely love that. Um, but now I'm much more willing, like I will spend sixteen, eighteen uh for something that I know is mm-hmm. gonna be good. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So when it comes to the local restaurant scene, let, let's start off with wine bars. Mm-hmm. So we've had a little explosion of wine bars in the Twin Cities right now. Yeah. So the Vine Room opened up in Hopkins, the Tasting Room at 31st and Hennepin, right. um, and then of course Bar Brava up in North Minneapolis, northeast-ish, mm-hmm. you know, right off of Broadway and Washington. Uh, have you been to any of those? I have been to none of them, Ah, which uh, is my concern for these places. Mm-hmm. Wine bars feels like something that people, uh, it feels like it's not a market-driven product in our community right now. Uh, how do you mean? I believe, and I, I'm hopeful that I'm wrong, but I think that wine bars are largely a product of people who think they want a wine bar and not the fact that the public is saying, we want a wine bar. Okay. So... Um, I'm actually most excited about the one in Hopkins. Yeah, the Vine Room. Yeah, because I think when you look at the restaurant scene in downtown Hopkins, which is pretty good, Mm -hmm. actually, it fills a nice hole in the market. And you think like, yeah, if I lived in Hopkins, I would be I would be hitting it up. I live in Maple Grove. Right. And so am I going to drive to Hopkins to go have a glass of wine? Probably not. Right. 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 Yep. And they have some food, right? They have a little bit of food. They have cheese plates but and charcuterie and things like that. go to a restaurant right. that has good wine? Probably. Right. Bar Brava is interesting because- I Super hear, interesting. I hear the food is great. Mm-hmm. And they're on the hot trend right now, which again, I don't think any regular people want this, but certainly the wine world wants us mm-hmm. to want it. And that, that I think is something that, you know, I work in the broadcast world where I deal with mass public 
And then I work in the regional magazine world at Minnesota Monthly, where I deal with foodies and wine lovers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think uh, the wine world, the Psalms in town, just like theater critics and movie critics like to push stuff that's weird mm-hmm. because they're bored. You see, completely I think, agree. I think the wine world likes to push stuff. Because they're like, you know what? Like, this is orange wine. It's so cool. And regular people are like, you know, I haven't really even advanced beyond Cabernet Sauvignon. Right. Right. Like, Rioja is yeah. kind of weird to that, me. That, that, that being said, I think I think there's a lot to be um, thought about in terms of the just the new energy, too. Because I think that we, we were in a place of a pretty boring wine scene for a long time. For sure. And so so distributors it, writing the wine list right. just absolute it, snooze fest. Yeah, but you still see that at, at quite a few places, you know, especially when big distributors get involved in the game and yeah. and all of a sudden they take over. But I think that the that the fresh energy is really fun, but at the same time, you know, I, I say this in wine classes all the time, I I don't want to have a server tell me what their favorite wine is. Yeah. In the same way I don't want to have a wine buyer simply say, you know, this is my this is the the, the wine because it might not be my taste and so the conversation is something that I think doesn't happen very often as far as sussing out what a customer really wants instead of what you want to sell and the hardest thing I think is most of us don't have a very good lexicon uh, to describe what we like right right so most Minnesotans if you ask them oh what kind of wine do you like sweet (laughs) sweet would be telling the truth right what do they usually say fruity well, dry. People yeah. say dry. Oh, people say dry. Yep. Oh, I want a like a light dry wine. Yep. And what they really want is a sweet. Yep. Yep. Kind of bright but, wine, but, and you think like, I mean, you're dealing with people who are coming to classes. Right. That's true. So imagine yep. like, you know, think of like your your in laws or yep. your average like, uh, uh, you know, family going to going to the Olive Garden or yep. whatever. So when people go to the store, and I think to a certain degree. I wonder if we need, sometimes I wonder like what would happen if you organized a wine store or a wine list and Mm -hmm. some wine lists are organized this way. I think it's smart. What if you organize it by, instead of by varietal, by flavor profile, flavor profile. Yeah. Right. Now you would drive someone like me crazy where Mm -hmm. I'm like trying to find, where's the French wine. Mm -hmm. But like most wine stores are are organized by, by a geographic region. Right. Yep. Yep. Geographic region for Europe and then by variety for for us. And is that how, like, does that jive with how most people think about what they want to drink? I I think it does. Yeah. I I think it does mainly because that's what people are used to when they walk into a wine shop, you walk into a wine shop and and we, we categorize like that. There've been a few wine shops around town even that have, have tried that tried method it, and it doesn't really work right? it, it's an uphill battle you yeah. know and i think it does work for a small subset but yeah again you people, know the, if you like something people tend to lock in on it right this is what I like. right exactly I like whatever so so when it comes to restaurant service mm-hmm. are you what, what what do you wish would happen in restaurants mm-hmm. in terms of wine service well, I will say I am absolutely in love with the trend we've had, and I think it's no accident that the, the uh, hottest wine professionals in our town uh, are women. Yes. And it's because I think women, uh, to stereotype, are, <laughs> and I, I tread lightly, but women, I think, understand the guest and care about the guest experience more than mm-hmm. proving how smart they are. Yep. And so 
Uh, nothing breaks my heart more than when I hear a, a Facebook friend of mine or a Twitter follower say, I went to this restaurant and they asked me what I like and I said, and then they tried to talk me into something else. Yep. You think yep. like, oh. Yep. Like you have to earn that trust, right? Like mm -hmm. I, there are wine professionals in town where I would absolutely drink whatever they tell me to drink. Right. Like who? Uh, so uh, there are people at liquor stores that I absolutely trust. So mm -hmm. like Peter Vars mm -hmm. at Thomas Liquors. Yep. Uh, Rob Benelli, who's over at North Loop yep. now. Rob and I have very similar tastes mm -hmm. in wine, so anything Rob and, tells me to drink, and I'll so drink. over time he's learned your taste, he's and he's my and, taste. yeah, and, and, and I know what he likes, and I've tried it, and exactly. I like it, and you say like, all right, Mitch Zavada over at uh, Ten Ten Washington, yep, uh, Chuck Kansky was probably the first over mm -hmm. at Solovino, mm -hmm. uh, who who's helped me along in that way, um, but then at at uh, restaurants, uh, you know, the Bachelor Farmer. With Amy Waller. Yep. Uh, I just, she, I think, is brilliant mm -hmm. uh, and so fun and friendly mm -hmm. that guests absolutely love the experience at The Bachelor Farmer. Yep. Uh, and there's good reason they have national acclaim for their wine. Exactly. I think Alma, I, I wish people knew that you could just go sit at the bar. Yes. I think yep. Alma, because it's a tasting menu place, people think like, can I go there and right. just have a drink right. and have dessert? Like, yeah. And, and James is so sharp and so intuitive when it comes to wine pairing yeah. and, and, yeah. and putting a little something in front of you. It's, one thing that James does really well, and I've noticed this at a few other restaurants lately, is the, is the micro taste. You know, so you order your glass and then they come with one ounce of something else and then just say, you know, here's your glass of Pinot Noir and here's this cool little Corvina that we just uh, put on the list. Try that one out too. Fun. And I love it when a little experimentation is yeah. part of the game, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that I would say that I would like to see more of is there are some larger restaurants. So, you know, I think of like a Bar La Grassa mm -hmm. or a Birch. It's a big place, mm -hmm. and they're doing a lot of volume. Uh, I think that the education that they give the trainer or give the servers I don't know how good it is because right. sometimes you're there and you feel like you don't know anything about this wine list or you right. don't know how to guide me or you, because I, I always ask for help. Always. Mm -hmm. always. Yeah. Just to see what they would say. See what they say. Yeah. See what they know. See, I assume that they know more than I do. Yep. And, uh, I think it's a low bar for them to know more than I do, but I would like to see servers. Uh, what I love is if a server says, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't feel really comfortable. Let me get somebody else. Right. Let me grab the manager and, or the wine buyers awesome. here. Yep. Um, but I, I think, I think that's important if right. we want people to keep uh, growing and trying new things. I, I think for restaurants and restaurant training in general, I mean, obviously the food comes for uh, food and culture come first. Yeah, you, you have to be able to talk about the food in yeah. detail. You have to talk about you of have course. to join the culture of the restaurant, and then you move down the line, and then cocktails are confusing. So here's what all the ingredients are for this one cocktail, and you need to be able to convey that. And then you get into the craft beers, which change you know hourly uh, on a uh, yeah. at a bar, and then you get to the wine. Yeah. And I think that you, a server has to be at a restaurant for quite some time it's on hard. average. And in order yeah. to get to the wine part of the Have training. Have you tasted through this stuff? Probably right. not. Right, Probably right. Probably not. Exactly. So I think that uh, that is a big thing that I wish we saw more of. And then I, I also wish we saw more attention 
paid to the buy the glass list. Right, right. Uh, because I would much rather order three different glasses of wine and try some different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rarely, uh, I would say, is the list interesting enough to give me three good right. choices. Well, and that's that's why I think the wine bar mini boom that we have right now yeah. is so interesting because... For, Maybe I need to be going to these, Jason. What am I doing? <laughs> for, 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 for wine people, that's where the experimentation can really happen. Sure. And, and, yeah. and 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 you know, the, the the customer's already vetted. You're already there to experience wine. That's true. And, and, that's, a, and yeah. that's a big change in the conversation. And you can train your people there because right. you know that that investment's going to pay Exactly. Off. And there really is, I mean, having done a lot of staff trainings, there's nothing better than having a 22, 23-year-old, you know, newish server suddenly have the light bulb go off. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly you watch them get into it. Yeah. And being in the industry long enough, you start to see them enter the industry and all of a sudden they become part of the wine world around here and the culture. Yeah. And that's cool. And that's really, really cool. It is fun. We have this young group of wine professionals and yep. you see them like getting together and doing tastings yep. and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, they are passionate. Yeah, I think that's really fun. It's nice yeah. to see the energy and the excitement. Yep. You know? So uh, let's shift gears a little bit and just talk about wine travel because you and your wife started to hit wine regions a little bit more um, specifically and earnestly about five years ago, if I remember right. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I mean, we've done California for sure, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's pretty common, right? But we've right. Uh, been trying to grow our knowledge a little bit by uh, ex- going to different places around the world. Right. And so we, we spent some time in Spain mm-hmm. and visited Rioja. Hey, we have a bottle of Rioja right here, so I'm going to work on opening this while you, while you talk that's about Rioja. very important yeah. work. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and Rioja is just breathtakingly beautiful and uh, I'm kind of an architecture geek and so the architecture of the wineries out there you know you've got a a, a Calatrava designed winery you've got a Frank Gehry designed winery and you think you're like how do I get enough money to be doing this right right like this is incredible (laughs) uh in Rioja like you you learn a little bit about the craftsmanship and the rules and I'm a believer that great creativity can come out of uh, having walls built around you. Uh, and I think that's part of why I maybe gravitate to more traditionally made wines, because sometimes when you have rules and you say, okay, Rioja, here's how we do it. It's only really, mm-hmm. it's really three main grapes, right? But you got five grapes in Rioja they use generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it. Like, we're not putting any other weird stuff in. Right. Yeah, you're not You're not allowed to play with Merlot. You're not playing with Merlot. It's yep. real hot. Like, yep. You want Merlot? Yep. Have Merlot. Can, can, uh, can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, I, I love I love that idea that, you know, framework and, and boundaries can expand creativity because so many creatives, you know, or people that watch creatives work think that, you know, endless horizons in every direction are what are, are going to make the magic happen. But... This is, a, this is an interesting idea, not just yeah. involving wine, but just creative endeavors in general. That's not how I uh, achieve peak creativity. Mm-hmm. I think when there are walls around you and limitations on you, the idea of achieving something new or different within that boundary or a better iteration of something else, like to me, I find that more uh, challenging and stimulating and gives you a little bit of a direction. I think sometimes when you say like, eh, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's challenging. You know, when I, in the, the framework of a TV news story, when I was a general assignment news reporter doing the, just the typical normal stuff that happens, covering that for the 10 o'clock news, 
I was given a minute 20 to do that story. Right. And you think, wow, yeah. 80 seconds, what yeah. can you do? You have to figure it out. Right, especially with two guys sitting here rambling on this podcast for how long? <laughs> uh, sometimes having a wall yeah. and saying like, yeah. nope, like this is only going to be 20 minutes. Right, right. Power in that. Yep, yeah. big power. Yeah. That's the power of editing too. That's, <laughs> that is the beauty. <laughs> and also the beauty in doing an 80 second TV story. There you story, go. Right? So, so to take that that question of creativity and boundaries um do you find most wine shops or wine lists to not have those mm. those boundaries i don't know i think we've actually moved to a better uh, uh the one sheet wine list yep is, instead of the book yeah i think it's more of the the it's more common than not right and i right. think that's good yep yep um i expect you to edit it for me mhm um i don't need to see I will say, as someone who I love just hanging out in wine stores and just yep. looking, uh, I was up at the Haskells in Maple Grove, which has a wonderful French wine selection. And I was just like staring, just looking just at dreaming. the bottles, just dreaming, like, oh, that looks cool. Or, oh, I just visited that, uh, that region. Um, uh, I, I, I don't like seeing a list that I know uh, with a bunch of stuff that I know on. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? Like, if you can go buy it at, Costco, mm-hmm. it probably shouldn't be on your list. Right. 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 Because everybody shops there mm-hmm. and everybody sees it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to know that I could buy this for $12. Right. And you're selling it for $18 a glass. It's going to make <laughs> me mad. Of course. So I don't want to know that. Um, so I do like the one page list. I do think the big flabby list, it just makes people gravitate towards what they know. Mm hmm you're less likely to take a chance on something when you see an enormous list. And and I it's see like it. the Cheesecake Factory. You don't yeah. want the menu like that. Exactly, exactly. And I do see a lot of restaurants that you know go in one direction or the other. Um, and quite a few that are kind of playing the middle ground pretty well. But but safety seems to be a theme for a lot of wine lists. Like, yeah. like we need to have you know the main categories. Uh, we need our New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. We need our Pinot Noir. We need our Chardonnay. We need our Cabernet. Um, from there, where does a list go is always interesting to me in terms of wine by the glass service. Yeah. Well, you know, we also are, uh, as much as I'm seeing growth in this market in mm. terms of experimentation, and education of the wine professional. Uh, we're cheap. We're very cheap yep. in the Twin Cities. We're, we're frugal. Yes, yeah. that's right. Very frugal. <laughs> very money conscious. Yes. Um, and people uh, don't like to experiment. So mm-hmm. you look at Belcor, for example, in Wysetta, which opened, and I remember visiting, and their original wine buyer, Nico Girard, Yep. Nico said, it's going to be an all-French wine list. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? On Lake Minnetonka, you think yep. you're going to have an all-French wine list? I'm like, what are you going to do for the people who come in and want their Camus? Right. And their Opus right. One and right. their Rombauer. Yeah, and you're in Wyzetta. Oh, and... We're not going to have that. Yep. And I said, let's check back in a couple months yep. and see if you're not And what happened? It. Oh, they have it. <laughs> Shocking. Because that's what people want. And I do wish, so I don't blame the restaurants or the retailers so much. Mm-hmm. I wish we as a public were a little more willing to go for it. Yeah, I, I think that people want to experiment, but I just don't think they want to be surprised. I, I, they, they, they don't want to you know, pop that bottle of wine at home and be underwhelmed. They don't want to, they don't want to order that, that unknown glass of wine and be disappointed. Yeah. And I, I think there is also a cultural thing in the upper Midwest of um, things are fine. 
You know, mm-hmm. how, how's your wine? Oh, it's fine. fine. You know, and um, instead of saying in more of like a New York way, you know, no, I, I don't like this. You know, I want something yeah, different. And it's tricky because I, I think from a restaurant uh, perspective, if there's nothing wrong with the wine. Yeah. And you open, you someone orders a bottle. Yep. So who, uh, if you don't like it, should right. they eat that? Right, yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so, but at the but same time. I think time, a lot of guests feel yep. like you should. Right. And so it's It's not, dicey. It's dicey, right? Yeah. Yeah, what do you do? Do you eat? Say someone orders uh, a, a $60 bottle. Right. And they taste it, and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Are you supposed to just eat? No. What? 25 bucks 20 bucks probably I, I, not yeah I, I don't think so i don't think so if, if obviously obviously the gl- bottle and then you exactly say you don't like it, exactly i think it's tricky with a glass like i do think minnesotans need to be more assertive yep. in describing yep. what they like and i think that minnesotans also need to be more assertive in terms of temperature a service I think oh, I, th- I think that my pet peeve. Yep. So so many red wines get served way too warm. So many white wines get served way mm-hmm. too cold. White nice wines too cold can can be solved. You just yes. you just wait for a little bit. Nice but. restaurants too, and you'll see like the bottle of wine sitting on top, the red sitting on top of the wine fridge. Yep. I just think like, oh, yep. Like, why are you doing that? To exactly. Me? Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's start to uh, wrap this up with a couple of questions um, to finish things off with. Number one. Wine travel, just getting back to wine travel, where have you not been that is kind of right on your radar as far as the kind of the next trip or dream trip? So I have two places internationally that I really would like to go to. Uh, I would l- Italian wine absolutely vexes me. Mm-hmm. There's so many grapes, mm-hmm. and I feel like we just went to France and went to Bone in uh, Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And just to drive around and see the Appalachians, you're like, I get it. Yep. Now I understand. Yep. Uh, and before I didn't understand. Right. And you can look at the map and you can take the class, but mm-hmm. just being there, you're like, ah, right. I get it. Boots on the ground helps. So I would like to go to Italy. Uh, I would like to go to Portugal. Portugal for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. You kind of turned me on to Portugal, yep. so I really want to go to Portugal. Uh, domestically, we have never been to Willamette. Really? So uh, this year we were going to go to Willamette, mm-hmm. and instead my wife bought a flight to Paris. Oh, that's okay. I can't okay. really blame her. Yeah, yeah that, 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 <laughs> I, that's okay. I think she made the right choice, <laughs> yeah. but I really want to get to Willamette. Nice, nice. Yeah, so but that's what's on my list. Highly recommended. Okay, and then just to uh, finish off the final question, what advice do you give to the kind of the wine curious consumer, the average wine curious consumer that's trying to get to know about wine a little bit more, just in terms of figuring things out at the restaurants, for sure, because that's your specialty. So the f- uh, I would say, first of all, ask questions. I think Minnesotans are very worried about sounding stupid. Mm-hmm. And no one cares. It's great. Ask questions. So look at the list and and try to, before you go to a restaurant, try to think about the wines you love and what you love about them. Like, I know that I like wines that have multiple layers of flavor. I like a wine that is more earthy than fruity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want a dead wine. Like, I right. want a little fruit. When it comes to whites, I know I like acidic and minerally whites. That's mm-hmm. what I like. Yep. And so that is very useful to tell someone at a restaurant. To, to just a handful of terms and you get more of what you're looking for. You should be able to pick out some wines with what I've told you. With white, it's pretty simple. Yep. Like most people either like bright citrus 
or they like minerally kind mm-hmm. of chalky. Right, taste, right. Or, or, or oak and butter. Maybe you, you like know? oak and yep, butter. Yep. Right. And d- d- different wines, different times. But that's about all yep. you need to know. Yep. yep. I like all of this stuff. Yeah. But like generally, that's where I lean. With reds, it's a little more complicated, maybe. But you know, if you love Cabernet Sauvignon, which mm-hmm. I think most Minnesotans do. Right. You like a, a bit of a fruit bomb. Yep. And yep. don't be ashamed of it. Yep. Like, that's okay. Uh, like, I like, if you like a apothic red, mm-hmm. right, which a lot of people like. A lot that, of people like. And apothic red it, it, for a mass-produced, massive mm-hmm. wine is pretty good. It, it's, a it's, door, a, it's a door opener for a lot of people. Opener, yep. But it's a sugary, sweet, fruity mm-hmm. wine. Yeah. And so just know that. Like, don't think that you're... You're eating like a, you're drinking like a Rhone type red. Like that's not what it is. <laughs> yeah. And so I think if people could find those descriptors, it would help them a lot. Awesome. But also ask, ask for a glass. Ask if you see a bottle you're interested in, say like, hey, would you, would you open it? Yeah. Would you sell me a glass of it? Right. That? Like or, a or lot a, of places will. Or ask for a sample of the wines by the glass. You know, a lot of a lot of places will pour you one ounce, no problem at all. Don't be afraid of looking dumb. Right. And the same is the same with going to a liquor store. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to give a price point. Mm -hmm. So when I go to the liquor store, that is always what I say. I'm looking for uh, and I generally live between 12 and 18 dollars in the liquor store. That's what I'm buying. It's a great range. You're Almost never going to go, you'll find things you don't like, but you're right. almost never going to find a poorly made wine. Right, there. right. Whereas I think most Minnesotans like to live in the kind of 6 to 12 range. Mm-hmm. And you're rolling the dice. Well, I, Sometimes I, you'll find a gem. But every every once in a while. But I, I always like to remind people that under $10 a bottle, you need to use industrial winemaking practices to make right. that wine. You just need to. You, Which maybe is fine. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, it works yep. out fine. Yep. Yep. But. Uh, if you're not using industrial winemaking right. techniques, it's going to be very Yeah, you're going to get a whole lot less family-owned, family-operated, no organic yeah. farming for the most part at that price. And lean you into the it, stories but, also. Yep. I think people sometimes feel guilty about the fact that they loved a wine because they visited the winery. No. Don't feel that's, guilty about no, that's, it. This is all romance and yep, drama and yep, stories. Yep, and yep. I, I do a fair amount of blind tasting, and I mm-hmm. hate it. I hate it. <laughs> Because that's not how wine should be enjoyed. You should know it's okay to know the family. Yep. Uh, and and I also wish people would buy more Minnesota-connected wine. Yes. Where we have so many wineries that have a Minnesota owner, a Minnesota winemaker. Mm-hmm. It's a fun way to buy local. Right. And still get... Uh, flavor profile that you're looking for. Exactly, exactly. Well, huge thanks for uh, joining us for this, for uh, giving us your insight on uh, on the local scene and your opinions on finding good wines. It's, that's that's uh, great. It's been a great joy for both my wife and I. It's something yeah. we love to do together. Yeah. And the more we learn, the less we feel like we know. That's I mean, right. That's how it goes, that's, right? That, that's the best part about it. So awesome. Thanks, Jason. Thank Much you. appreciated. All right, that was great fun, and huge thanks to Jason DeRusha for staying down with us. 
in the before COVID days. I'm dividing everything up now to BC, DC, and AC, before COVID, during COVID, and after COVID. Uh, that was a fun interview. It was great fun to listen to it again a few months later. And it was also very kind of sad and strange at the same time, thinking about the situation that we're in. And he was freely discussing, we we're having a fun talk about places like the Bachelor Farmer and Bellicor, and they're gone. And the restaurant world is turned upside down right now. It is a whole different world. But I think it's also very important to think back to the way things were before and be confident that things will be good again later. So thanks again to Jason DeRussia for joining us for the Twin Cities Wine Podcast. A bunch of new stuff coming up. A lot of fun interviews are in the hopper. I'm Jason Carlson. Visit us at TwinCitiesWine.com and check out what we got going on online at thewineworkshop.net. We'll talk to you next time. See you soon. Thank you so much. Bye.